everyone. Welcome back to another episode of You're Wrong with Molly Hemingway, Editor-in-Chief of The Federalist, and me, David Harsani, Senior Editor at The Federalist. How are you, Molly? I'm great. It's good to be here with you. I actually love doing this because when we do our podcast, we get to see each other over Zoom, and it's just great to see you. You appear to be in a hotel room or something right now. I am. I'm in the heart of America in the Midwest. I'm in the state, great state of Indiana. Um, and uh, so I'm here for, for the week. And you were traveling. You were out in Colorado, I believe. Colorado and Wyoming. Oh, Wyoming. Perfect segue. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, what happened yesterday in Wyoming. Lynn Cheney, who I, I don't Liz, 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 Cheney. Liz, 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 her sister's Lynn, sorry. Liz Cheney. I interviewed Lynn Cheney once. Liz Cheney, I don't even know when she first became a Congress woman i do it was 2016 okay so she hasn't really been in dc very long i mean she's probably she's been, been in dc, DC for forever. a very long time yeah she hasn't been in wyoming for a long time <laughs> right right uh lost actually could i know i know we have so much to talk about yeah. with her getting trounced by uh harriet hageman but it's worth remembering that she began her political career by surprising the GOP in Wyoming by announcing that she was going to primary their sitting Senator Mike Enzi. She made her announcement for that 2014 race. She made it in 2013. And the Facebook post where she announced it was geotagged to her home in McLean, Virginia, because that's where she lives. And that's, that's always been who she represents. And that's, you know, that's her, that's her thing. She, tried to fit in in Wyoming in that Senate run. And so she pretended to be someone who wore jeans, but the jeans were so new that they stained her hands blue. And she had to, she had to quit that race in disgrace, but she was not going to allow that problem to stop her. She immediately set about to seize a congressional seat, which she won in 2016. She put the work in, got Alan Simpson on board and other big wigs in Wyoming, and she won that congressional seat. And from there, she pretty much immediately set about with her real plans, which weren't about Wyoming voters, but about her personal ambitions. She unseated um, Kathy McMorris Rogers as the GOP conference chair, and she got put into leadership pretty quickly. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, that had a lot to do with name recognition and her family, which. Because she's, she's royalty and she was royalty in the Republican Party. Right. And the Cheney name used to mean a lot more in the Republican Party pre 2015, 2016, um, though. So let's talk about it. So she she lost decisively and she would have lost even. There would have been a bigger margin of Democrats hadn't voted for. Is that correct? Yeah, I was actually just looking at the figures uh, because the Secretary of State puts out how many people vote in each primary. So in 2018, total ballots cast was about 140,000, 19,400 were Democrat. In 2020, total ballots cast were 140,000, 25,000 were Democrat. This year, 182,000 ballots cast and only 8,000 were Democrat. So 
I, I kind of want to write a little bit about her extensive get out the vote operation, which included some of the tricks that we saw used in 2020, mailing out absentee ballots to people unsolicited. Um, she definitely asked for publicly and privately for Democrats to change their registration to Republican. And it appears that did work. She was trounced. I mean, I don't know what the final numbers are, but it's for an incumbent member of GOP royalty. She was soundly rebuked and renounced. And if she hadn't had all of those Democrats voting for her, I wonder actually if the percentage of Republicans who supported her were, I think it looks like it would be low single digits. So if you take out all the Democrats that she managed to get to register or to change their registration to vote in the Republican primary, yeah, if you take that out, I think her her Republican support would be in the low single digits. Now, obviously, the media frames this as as a case of the Republican Party just being totally, you know, taken over by the Trump cult and standing in, in you know, in his way and, you know, will will we'll kill you with with his with Republicans. But I have. So typically I like people who are contrarian and stand outside their party in this way. But I have a few I have a list. You, of num a numbered list of reasons why I think that she should have lost and that she's terrible. Okay. So I'm going to go through them go and see what you have to say. And all of this was crystallized yesterday in the speech she gave. So first of all, she has a completely outsized size of importance for herself, her movement and what she's doing. She compared herself to civil war generals and to Lincoln uh, yesterday in, in her concession speech. Um, and she talked a lot about the Constitution. I don't think the people that she's aligned herself with are at all better for the Constitution than Donald Trump, who is problematic for me, but but better for the Constitution, in my opinion, than Joe Biden or the other people. She has an immense sense of entitlement, which you alluded to just now. And that was crystallized when she had her dad in a commercial talking about how Donald Trump was the scariest thing that's ever happened to the republic. Um, she's allowed herself to be used by Democrats in this committee which shows poor judgment. Um, and then circling sort of back to the Constitution, the January 6th committee does not have any kind of, uh, you know, it's not undergirded in any sort of constitutional, you know, principle. So there is no due process. Um, and then another thing that Crystal, and her didactic tone is just very off-putting. And that has to do with all those things. And the, and lastly, which really crystallized it again for me was when she came out and I think it was last week against DeSantis. She said she'd, she'd have trouble voting for him. Now, if you have trouble, if you want to move past Trump and you're troubled by his personality and the things that he does and his authoritarian, uh, you know, demeanor or whatever, and you can't then say, let's move to DeSantis, then obviously you're just a, a future, you know, hardcore never Trumper. And, you know, essentially your whole, you undermine your whole case. So that, that's why I think that she deserved to lose. So on that last point, I saw someone say something interesting last night that the reason why they didn't like her was not because she's disloyal or whatever, or even that she hates Trump, that she's motivated by her hatred of Trump. It's that she's such a failure at her stated goal of moving the party past Trump. This person was arguing that her obsession, her seething hatred for Trump, the way she has managed her January 6th committee, which violates 
every American notion of due process, right to have a defense, you know, who argue, you know, two sides of a story being the, what you need in order to get to the truth. He was saying that the reason why he doesn't like her is because she's done more to rehabilitate Trump than anybody else. Like she's the reason why. By her own measure, she says she wants to move past Trump and she's the reason why nobody can move past Trump because she's making her life's purpose, destroying him in a very un-American way. Well, no one wants to move past Trump less than Democrats and Democratic leadership and Adam Schiff and people and Chuck Schumer. And she's essentially um, on board with that. But, I, you know, listen, I am not. Wait, yeah, I want to say a few other things because yeah, I yeah. liked all of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You noted that she used her dad. It was this, you know, idea that we have we have regimes and they have children and you have to support the children. And what I thought was interesting about the use of her dad in advertising is that her campaign figured out that Wyoming voters, the people she's supposed to represent, so disliked her that she couldn't appear in her own ads. She only could have other people appear who talked about why they were voting for her. That's a bad sign when you can't appear in your own ads. And I was in Wyoming last week and I saw the ads that were running against her. And it was really interesting how focused on issues and ideas those other ads were. They were criticizing her for her foreign policy, for her refusal to care about Wyoming values, for her unconstitutional assault on civil liberties. And so you listen to DC people and because they think that the only principle that matters is seething hatred of Donald Trump, which is by the way, one of the weirdest principles to, to hold to. Like it's such a low thing, hatred of one man, but that's the only principle they hold to. That's why they can't support Ron DeSantis. Cause as she said, he doesn't share my hatred for this one man. And so because he doesn't share my uncontrollable hatred, I would have a hard time supporting him. That's not really principled. That's, I mean, it is, I guess, a principle. Hatred of a man can be a principle you hold to. But what a stupid principle and what an ungenerous principle and what a like un-American way to look at what representative government is about. But that's the only thing she holds to. And yeah, I talked with a lot of people, even in liberal, where I was in like in a very liberal part of Wyoming, the only liberal part of Wyoming, perhaps, which is Jackson. And I thought it was interesting that I did not see a single Liz Cheney sign the whole time I was there. I did see signs for Harriet Hageman and other people. And people there were talking about their frustration with her. It had nothing to do with her personal loyalty to her dad or her hatred of Trump, but how that hatred had led her to embrace unconstitutional principles. So there, there are people who, you know, Wyoming is one of these weird places where people actually do care about the Constitution and upholding it. They're very tolerant of different viewpoints, but they didn't like how she was running roughshod over the country. Yeah, Wyoming's kind of, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have great expertise on this, but I lived in Colorado for a while. And, you know, I just feel like Wyoming has a sort of libertarian, small L worldview, you know, um, so or I shouldn't say the state does, but many people in the state do, uh, which is, is normal for Western Republican parties, right? 
I do have a question for you. Yeah. Do you think it's admirable that she's so loyal to her dad that she's willing to burn down the country over it? Or do you think like there's a lesson for the limits of loyalty there? Like I gen generally admire people who are loyal to their family. I, I admire it so much. I've actually been thinking like, what's the test on it? Cause like, it's kind of cool that she so defends her father and that, no, that she, was a, that was a that slight there was a slight begging of the question there where you were like do you think she should be loyal and burn down the country uh, you know what probably, i mean though yeah, like yeah. to do what she's doing i don't she know. probably doesn't see it that way or maybe she does i don't know how she sees things i would say that i would i, I admire loyalty to family but does not mean i don't think pulling him out and putting him in that ad was loyal i thought i thought it was embarrassing i wouldn't make my father do something like that right because I'm and sure he wanted to, though. I think they have, love, yeah. they love mean, her. They view it as a family affair. Like the Bushes did the same thing. They viewed Trump and opposition to him as a family affair that everybody had to join in on. Um, a lot of people who've been personally insulted by Trump view it as a as a joint effort by yeah. the whole family. I'm not as ang angered by these sort of, you know, people call them dynasties or whatever. But the truth of the matter is, I thought that George W. Bush was a better politician than his dad. I thought he was a good governor of Texas. I well, thought Jeb, I thought Jeb was a good governor of on. Florida. You yeah. thought George was a better, do you mean by that, that he was better at like talking to people? Or I mean, I mean, that when he ran for president, I thought that his, ideologically and with his record of governing a state was better than his dad, who had been a, basically a bureaucrat in DC. Okay. I kind of get that, but I do think George H.W. Bush had a much better foreign policy than the one that George W. Bush came yeah. to embrace. I guess I'm setting aside ideo your ideology on foreign policy when, first of all, when when before 9-11, George W. Bush's foreign policy sounded quite a bit like his dad's. Right. Yeah. And he even had the same people in his administration to some extent. Yeah. So. Um, I had such high hopes for it with that. So that does remind me, too, when people are always complaining about Vladimir Putin being a former KGB head, I'm always like, do they remember what George H.W. Bush's job was? Apparently not. I don't know. I mean, not that I'm equating the yeah, KGB yeah, with, not a with moral, day, but... Right. It's not a moral equivalence between the two. Well, you know, most well, of the time. Yeah, um, sometimes. Okay, so I have now a list to 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 answer to your list that you just had first of all you mentioned the um the the, the obsession with trump and, the, and an ideology that essentially is just about be, being anti-trump to me from the beginning i've said that is as unprincipled as simply saying donald trump's right all the time you know what i mean it's the same it's just the mirror image of that secondly you know if you're in politics like i don't i've never joined a political party and i don't even vote I'm not saying that makes me better, but I do that because I don't want to be part of the tribal political world, the partisan world. But if you're running for, for office, you have to represent the people in your state and want to be elected. Right. So being being be the, I understand her principled stand and all of that, but then you should be prepared to lose. And obviously she was. But she, that segues into this delusional idea she has that she can run for president i mean the, the and democrats are like cheering her on they're cheering her on because they want her to run as a, as a some kind of third party candidate to sift votes away from republicans there's no other reason they would never vote for for, for cheney 
past, even her views on abortion, you know, or her stated views or her votes in the past on abortion, on, uh, you know, whatever, m- markets, whatever. I mean, it's all co- pretty conservative, right? So it's obviously- Well, I don't know. I, I have found that them. almost without exception, never Trump extremists are willing to sacrifice literally every single policy or political position they hold, except for the one we talked about, which is hatred of Trump. So I would assume that while she claimed for political reasons, maybe, or maybe they were genuine to be conservative, you know, she tended to vote pretty well, actually. Um, I think maybe like in the 90 percentile of general conservative positions, uh, I would be not surprised if she joined all the other never Trump extremists in sacrificing literally every other policy position, but who knows? Like if she thought, if she really cared about those, she would be having a different perspective about threats to the country right now, I think. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that she even talks about anything else, right? I mean, Can I yeah. point out that the New York Times yesterday, as soon as Harriet Hageman was believed to be beating Liz Cheney, they rolled out an anti-Harriet Hageman piece about how she was unlike Cheney, you know, like super anti-environmental extremist. And I was just thinking, yeah, like Wyoming voters understand that Harriet Hageman is willing to take on leftist special interests in a way that Liz Cheney, who, although she might vote the right way, never developed a reputation as really giving it to the interests that opposed Wyoming voters. And that explains. Oh, and I also want to say that I just found it fascinating that last night as Cheney was shown to be losing all of her supporters in corporate media and other leftist establishments. They were all talking about like how awful Wyoming nights were and how stupid they were and how, you know, backwards they were and how principled Liz Cheney was. And I noticed that the people who were praising Hageman on her campaign, it's just a simple little thing, but they were giving credit to Wyoming voters. And I know you're not a populist, David, and I know you hate the people or whatever. Yeah. But it is as someone who does love people in Wyoming, I loved seeing people give them credit for what they had done. They were doing what the D.C. establishment was too scared to do, taking on you know, where they were, what the D.C. establishment would refuse to do. They were taking on the establishment. They were taking on the establishment's favorite political hero of the moment. And they were telling her that, you know, at the end of the day, voters get a say in whether things are going to be the way D.C. wants them to be. And I and it was just nice to see people appreciate that. Yeah, I, I don't hate all people. I, I just don't like people. I don't like people when they're in a big group together, you know, who usually don't act the right way, but I have nothing, you know, I, I have nothing against what Wyoming did but yesterday. Just, people have you to know, vote. You're anti-populist. You mm-hmm. don't believe in democratic vote so much, or I, what is your position exactly? Um, I, I, I am not a populist. I don't think pop, I, I think that a, a really principled politician can convince people sometimes that they're not thinking correctly or that there's a better way. Um, I don't like, I I think democracy should be limited and very, very local. That would be my favorite kind of democracy. And, uh, but you know, this is the system and I have no problem with uh, what, you know, Wyoming voters thinking that Cheney was not representing their, their views. I mean, that's what, that's what I was trying to get to before. I mean, I'm not a populist, but we have certain institutions and democratic institutions and you have to represent the people that's in the end what it is either convince them she had a chance to convince them that her view of donald trump and her view of what 
happens in DC is correct. And she obviously didn't do that. Well, even opposite. that, even that the lack of humility inherent in not even trying to persuade people is just so it's just arrogant and icky. Like I'm willing to hear any argument that people put forth. I do expect people to recognize certain principles, such as, you know, a principle of due process. I loved when CNN went to Wyoming to find voters who supported Cheney and they were doing their best to defend her. And they're like going to all these voters at Frontier Days. And they're like, don't you love what she's doing in support of the Constitution and rule of law? And this guy was like, what rule of law? If if this were about rule of law, I believe President Trump would have a defense there. And that's what the whole principle of having bipartisan committees is about, is about having a balance of opinions to get at the truth. The whole system is built on a ranking member and its party representing, you know, an opposite side of the majority party so that you can get multiple perspectives and come to the truth through the debate and vigorous interchange of ideas. People keep saying, well, there are, um, you'll say, there are no Republican appointed members on this committee. And people say, well, everyone who's testified has been Republican. Well, testimony under oath doesn't mean anything if it's not challenged. And so, you know, also even testimony under oath might not mean much even when it is challenged, but it certainly doesn't mean anything if you're not facing questioning and scrutiny of your position. People who seek truth are not afraid of due process. And they don't say things like, well, this isn't a criminal trial, so we don't need to protect the rights of the accused. No, yeah, but they, they want it both ways. They keep saying it's not a criminal trial, but then they treat revelations as if it was criminality. Right. Right. So you can't have it both ways. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't be able to. Well, yeah. I just got two quick things one, to segue into the next topic, which I think works well. <laughs> Obsessed with the segues. One. Dems want him to run so bad that most of this to me, including the next thing we're going to talk about, seem to me to be dares like they're just daring him to run. They're saying, you, you know, you're 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 a criminal. You actually lost. You cheated. All of those things. But secondly, let's talk about Joe, Joe Morning Joe. Right. And or other nitwits like that who talk about the FBI and the IRS and whatever else it is. You know, speaking of constitutionality and Wyoming voters, as if we're supposed to just trust them no matter what they do. And that is an un-American way to look at the world. We are not supposed to trust institutions and the police. We're supposed to question them. They have to earn our trust, not the, the, the reverse. And to them now, you know, I, you know, calling people unpatriotic because they simply won't, uh, you know, bend their knee to the rule of, you know, so-called rule of law when we're talking about an FBI that has uh, earned our distrust over the over the past few years. But really, when you read about their history, they've earned our distrust from the first moment they were they were formed. Um, so putting those things together, I wanted to talk about the raid last week since we didn't have a podcast. Um, Can I just say, yeah, by the way, we didn't have a podcast last week because I was supposed to be on vacation. And I was having a wonderful time in Colorado, just enjoying my day so much. It was basically like my one true super vacation day, no responsibilities, nothing to do. And I went to bed like after midnight and Mark, my husband said, did you see that they raided Mar-a-Lago? Which then meant I had no sleep for the rest of the night. I couldn't believe it was happening. And also like, it just... 
kind of ruined the whole vacation. I was so upset because I am someone who has been very concerned about the breakdown of rule of law at our Department of Justice and FBI. I have written about it extensively. I sound like a broken record when I'm on television saying we've got a real problem with the FBI and Department of Justice. And I knew this was a possibility that they were so out of their minds with their own hatred and obsessions that they might do something like this. But it's still horrifying to live in a country where the FBI and Department of Justice are engaged in these partisan uses of the law to target political opponents and, you know, and excuse their own political allies. It's it's a it's it just makes me very sad because I love this country and it's very sad to see what the FBI and Department of Justice are doing to it. It's it's funny that you mentioned the vacation because I I'm you know I'm not writing this week and I'm like it'll be fine <laughs> you know and it's like one thing after the next you're like God I really should be weighing in on this you know and this has been the case since like 2015 like you can't <laughs> you cannot take a week off do you, and also it's do you remember when August used to be the month yeah. when everybody left DC they would go on their vacations you had some peace like I feel like it's been 20 plus years where that hasn't been the case but it really used to be too hot to be here and people would leave and news just didn't happen so much. When I, when I first wrote a column, it used to be where, you know, I file at five and you'd be fine because what's going to happen overnight? Nothing, right? Like the, the news cycle's <laughs> done and tomorrow we'll, we'll pick it up again. And then it was just like the internet and then Twitter and, and then Donald Trump. And it was, it's just in hyperdrive. There's literally not a minute where something isn't happening. And if you really take a day off and you shut everything off or even two days and you come back, you have to like, figure out somehow <laughs> like work your way back on twitter to figure out what the memes are what's happening who said what it's like a really tough job right so you just sort of stay plugged in so you don't completely lose the plot yeah i did like try it. I did. it's like a soap opera you know so i was watching some commentary on the raid recently and i was shocked to see some adults say stuff like well uh, maybe we should wait and see if the FBI has something here. I have to and admit. I was thinking, are we living in the same reality? You alluded to it in your introduction. Like they've lost any deference that they might have had, that they might, you know, and you cannot have existed from 2015 to the present day and reasonably say, well, I'm going to wait and hear what they have to say, because that's, that just means you're, it's not just that you're not thinking, you're actually aiding destruction of American values. And what I mean by this is, even if you excuse everything the FBI has done in decades leading up to 2015, we know the story is they set out after a Republican candidate, they lied and falsified evidence to secure warrants, they lied in front of a secret court to do that, they paid a Russian agent or they tried to pay a Russian agent a registered or not even registered. You know, they paid a guy who's a Russian agent to create this steel dossier that was sourced to a guy they thought was a Russian spy, all while accusing their political opponent of allowing foreigners to meddle in the U S election. They, refused to turn over evidence on the grounds that it would harm national security when in fact it would have just harmed their reputation to be transparent. They ran human informants against multiple people close to the president. 
They, I mean, I can't even like they, list. They, they, do, they doctored an email. That's the FISA warrant of evidence. They, the FBI director was writing one-sided accounts designed to cause problems to the president. They ginned up a totally ludicrous special counsel that went on for years until it came out that there was nothing there. So saying, I'm going to wait for years to allow the FBI and Department of Justice to do that thing where they leak to friendly and unscrupulous reporters to make things sound really bad before we find out years later that there's nothing there. You're an idiot. You're worse than an idiot. You're bad for the country. And so, no, I'm not waiting at all. I know what the FBI does. I know they have no scruples when it comes to Donald Trump. I don't care... I don't care what they put out. I no longer believe them because I've seen them lie in affidavits. I've seen them falsify evidence. I've seen them run their leak campaign. So to say, well, shouldn't we wait and see if they have the goods? We see we no. see former we see how former agents talk about politics and Donald Trump right now, you know, out on Twitter who have been fired. I mean, how many David, did yeah. you see that Peter Strzok, the guy who yeah. ran the anti-Trump operation, legitimately tweeted out that the multiple passports that they seized were probably because one of them was Russian. The dude is a whack job. I mean, he's a whack job and he was running the thing and he's never, ever, ever been held accountable for his campaign to run a soft coup against the president, Peter Strzok. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of those law enforcement institutions were running a soft coup. Like the, the word there can is is the right word. A riot, a spontaneous riot that politicians had nothing to do with other than at worst, you know, ginning up some anger over a real issue that, you know, is not a coup. So in, in any event, I mean, listen, I'm kind of a squish. So my first instinct always is to see let, let's play, let's see this play out and see what's going on. But my first instinct for the first time in my life as, as writing about politics was, no, I don't trust the FBI. I wrote it up immediately. I wanted to like be on the record to say that I don't trust them anymore. We have no reason to trust them. They should be completely transparent about this. And that, and I immediately, all the signs, it was like deja vu immediately about Russia collusion, except I fell initially for that. I didn't fall for the collusion claims, but I fell for the let's wait and see. Immediately, it was like Garland comes out. He's like, it was a very narrow scope, you know, in in the search and all that. But yet then I read it was like an eight hour, you know, an eight hour uh, uh, takeover of of, of the Trump compound, I'll call it. And they were just taking boxes of stuff out. How could that be? And then we learn that they took his passports, correct? And um and that the scope of the, the scope of the search warrant was anything he had ever any document from his presidency, so that to me just it, it seems like a, a you know a witch hunt and um, and I think it is and I think it was and nothing's changed my mind. I mean they released the Their search. Stories are all over the place already. So first they were trying to say you know they say this was really narrow. Then they, it was about presidential records. And they're like, it's all about classified documents, basically about Trump, or about uh, nuclear codes. Yeah. Then, <laughs> then it turns out that like, the- I, I'm like, I hope they change those like every day or oh, every I week. <laughs> then it turns out like the warrant was for literally any presidential record at all. Then they say that 
it was urgent. Again, nuclear, nuclear codes, it was urgent. But it took 18 months to do it. And also Merrick Garland leaks that he actually deliberated. For wait, wait, wait. How could he leak anything? I thought that the FBI were like the best, most the oh, right. most patriotic civil servants who have ever existed. Like literally five minutes after he spoke, they were leaking all of that. Yes. He said, we will not be operating through leaks. We'll be operating through like public filings. And then 30 seconds later, the leaks are just flowing straight through the New York Times and Washington Post. And everyone is like, why is Donald Trump trying to stop, you know, transparency? But now they don't want us to see the affidavits for this. Okay. on that note. Back last week. There were all these never Trump extremists saying that the FBI and Department of Justice would seek transparency and that Trump wouldn't. And that was evidence of his guilt. And so now, oh, cut to a week later, Trump is begging people to please release every piece of information to be transparent to the American people. The Department of Justice is going to court to hide what they're doing. And do these extremists change their tune? Do they say, oh, I was wrong. Actually, uh, Trump wants transparency and the Department of Justice doesn't. And by my own standard, that must mean there's something wrong at the Department of Justice. Not a word. They're, you know, these principled opponents of Trump somehow are not very principled. They, they never they never have to apologize for their positions. They never have to apologize for for saying things like, you know, uh, Trump is being blackmailed by Putin or that, you know, they never apologize for anything. And that's why they have no I, actually I shouldn't say apologize. They never go back and correct the record of their own positions, which I think is really important for someone in the public eye to do. So they have no credibility. And I, I don't know, I, I hate to sound this way, but sometimes I go out of my way to try to correct the record or point out, oh, I was wrong about this. I think it should lend you some credibility, even though I don't, I, you know, probably doesn't work that way anymore. But in any way, I don't know if this is related to that, but I was thinking about <clears throat> my own my own problem of disliking Liz Cheney, which I will just say, I know I've got a problem. I do try to pray for her because I know you should pray for people regardless of whether you like them or not. And so I'm working on that. But my lengthy opposition to her foreign policy and the way she goes about it uh, means that I did not think she should be in Republican leadership ever. And there was an effort to unseat her early on in 2021 and it failed. She called for a vote and she won it decisively. There was much celebration among her constituents, her constituents, her corporate media and, you know, military industrial complex, never Trump extremists, et cetera. And they were all praising her. I mean, Mitch McConnell even said, you know, he, can, he went out of his way to congratulate her on her decisive victory. And I was remembering just that I felt very bad about that because we had been I mean frankly I feel like the people who thought that they had enough votes to take her out were just wrong um they'd been over confident about the ability to take her out but I'd said something like at the time like I don't think this is a sign of political strength that she had to face such a vote and oh my goodness did people get really mad at me you know they began this talking point that hatred of Trump is a political value that matters more than all other values um and that she it matters more than caring about what your constituents want. And I predicted that it might not go well for her in Wyoming. And I was glad to see <laughs> that that happened. But I was wrong that she might be unseated early in uh, 2021. You know, she survived then, but she did not survive through there.
Anyway, I don't even know why. I'm just, I just think it's interesting sometimes to go back and look at what people are saying and what their predictions are. And a lot of people felt that that was a renunciation of the Republican voter in that moment. But I think the Republican voter managed to have the final word. Well, well the, the normal Republican voter who doesn't maybe watch the news every day sees Democrats praising her all the time. <laughs> I mean, they're not stupid. They understand that she's helping them in some way. They don't exact may not know all the specifics of what's going on in the committee, because I don't think most people actually care about that committee, um, the January 6th committee. But they know that Democrats like her. She must be helping them to tie these two stories that we're talking about mm -hmm. together, Cheney and the Mar-a-Lago raid. I think that what this is really about, you look at what how uh, someone pointed out that Donald Trump has ended the Clinton dynasty, the Bush dynasty, and the Cheney dynasty, or at least, you know, severely constrained them. He's had decisive victories against all three of those. That is very disturbing to the regime, to the establishment. They find him a threat. The problem we have in this country is that the same thing that people love about Trump, that he is disrupting the regime or disrupting the establishment, is why the establishment is willing to do literally whatever it takes. That's what Lois Cheney said. I'm willing to do literally whatever it takes to keep the American people from having this guy as president. And that is the problem. They need to they need to start accepting elections. They don't get to decide who the American people have as their representative. And this is this happens to be about Trump, but it's not just about Trump. This is really about whether you, I mean, I can't even believe, and I know I'm talking to the wrong person about this, given what you said about democracy, but I can't believe that the people who are always loudly claiming that they love democracy are in such opposition to it. All of this country's major problems, like in this moment, and I don't mean by this, sorry, that was hyperbolic. Many of this country's problems in recent history, all point back to the refusal of the establishment regime to accept their loss in 2016. You know, this raid of Mar-a-Lago can be traced back to that. The Russia hoax can be traced back to that. What they were willing to do in the 2020 election in order to secure victory is traced back to this. And the problems that that caused, what they were willing to do to the system to make sure that they won, we need, if the Republic is going to survive, I think we really desperately need these people to accept that Donald Trump really was elected president in 2016 in a legitimate, free and fair election. And until they accept that, we can't really move past anything. Well, two things. One, just a note on my democracy of aversion. I am, my problem is with majoritarianism mostly. I have no problem with things that people associate with the, with democracy, which are free press, you know, freedom, you know, to, to decide your own lives, uh, economic freedom in some sense, things like that. When Democrats say democracy, they don't actually mean any of those things. They don't really even mean majoritarianism because if things don't go their way, they just refuse to accept an election. They want the court to intervene and uh, compel people to do things all the time. They, you know, gay marriage was decided by a court. Abortion was decided by a court. They are not for democracy when it comes to dealing with abortion. So I just want to make that clear. Secondly, Democrats haven't accepted a presidential election since 1988, and um, they're not going to accept it. They lost. One. They haven't accepted a loss. A loss, right. Yeah, sorry, a loss. Um, 
but they have the entire establishment, the media, most of D.C., working for them so that when they lose an election, they can just shut down the, the administration of Donald Trump, the foreign policy of Donald Trump, the everything. It's very hard. Donald Trump couldn't. I think that he didn't do many things he should have done, but in many ways he couldn't do things because D.C. just simply wouldn't go along with it. So that's why you see these kind of protests and, you know, and the get out of hand. I'm not excusing anything that happened on January 6th. I'm just saying that there's a lot of anger because then you have a Barack Obama who comes in and abuses government in, in new all kinds of, you know, he smashes all kinds of norms. And that's why I think Donald Trump came in and people wanted him to change things. It's like, I'm out. I don't want Donald Trump to run. I'd rather have anyone else, not anyone else run, but I'd rather have someone else run. But then he says something like, but then Axios has a story like, you know, Donald Trump's going to come in and destroy the civil service. And I'm like, oh, man, maybe I'm back in on this. Like, that sounds pretty good. But to, to the ears of someone in D.C., just, you know, cut, you know, firing 100,000 civil service people is like the end of the world. So in any, any event, I don't think democracy means what they say it means when they talk about it. And so that's that's another problem I deal with when writing about it. I want to kind of stop talking politics. Mm -hmm. But I do want to just say one final thing. Yeah. I think it's weird that Donald Trump is the only political leader that you're not allowed to like. Like mm -hmm. I grew up in a in a time when you did, you weren't just expected to like Reagan. You kind of had no future in the Republican Party if you didn't just sing his praises. Or if you're a Democrat, you I think there are similar things with Barack Obama. You have to really praise it. But really, all Republican presidents, with the exception of, you know, Nixon or something, you're expected to just be like really loyal to them. And it's very weird that Wyoming voters are chastised for supporting the man who's easily like the most successful Republican president in modern history. You point out that he had all this bureaucracy to fight against, but he actually was amazingly successful, particularly because he was fighting that bureaucracy. And I just think that like weird thing in DC where you're not allowed to say that you support him or that you like him, or if you do, you're treated like this pariah. It's just weird because a, the Republican party voters like, love him for good reason. He's incredible. He's actually the most popular uh, po politician in America of the major politicians, according to the Real Clear uh, Politics polling average. He has the least discrepancy between his favorables and the unfavorables. He's far more popular than Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Mitch McConnell. And it's just weird the way D.C. treats him as he's like as if he's not the legitimate most recent president and that he's not a very popular political figure. You are 100 percent right. This is what I was trying to get to about the tribal stuff and parties. Like, do you think that you I, I have to go back? Maybe there are instances. But do you think in like, you know, during the Reagan era, people were like Reagan sucks in the Republican Party and they were winning election House seats? I mean, it's probably not true. No one came out against Barack Obama in the in the Democratic Party and was winning a seat. It, it, this is the norm. You you're always going to be loyal to the president. Of, you know, he's the leader of your party and he has been he was successfully won a presidency. So that's why you're going to show loyalty to him. I mean, it's not that complicated. Right. Yeah. OK, so let's move on. Yeah. Wanted to quickly touch on. Do you have anything cheerful? This is not cheerful. Okay. It might, I, I don't know. Maybe you'll have a story that's cheerful. But um, Salman Rushdie was stabbed last week. I forget what day. 
And to me, this was just a massive story, or I thought it would be a massive story, but there was just really fleeting coverage, um, especially from institutions that when initially it all went down and the Satanic Verses was published and everything was happening, it was probably like above the fold New York Times. You know, it was just huge news because you had theocrats threatening and blackmailing the West, maybe for the first time, surely in the, in the modern times of, uh, you know, of, of, of of trying to censor them and trying to, to, to stop them from saying something. So, um, but it didn't seem like very big news. Um, and it, it, and that was disappointing, but maybe my theory is just a reflection of how a lot of those people at the New York times and elsewhere think about the first amendment and the underlying idea of free expression, uh, these days. So it was horrifying to see the lack of coverage. And I think the reason why is the reason why it's horrifying, which is at the time that the fatwa was issued against Salman Rushdie, both the left and the right opposed this type of um, assault on freedom of the press or freedom of speech. And we now live in a time where that has become only a position on the right and that people on the left think that speech is violence. And so therefore violence against that speech is justified. That is something that they, that has become quite mainstream in leftist thinking in America. And so they couldn't very well speak against this stabbing, this horrific stabbing of Salman Rushdie without betraying their own deeply held principles. And so you didn't see it getting a lot of media coverage. You didn't see lefty groups that claim to care about civil liberties or freedom of the press or author rights um, speaking out against it or speaking out against it vociferously. And I want that man to die a very old age, Salman Rushdie. I want him to die a very old age, peacefully in his sleep, in bed. And I am thrilled that he has, you know, I hate that he had to go into hiding for a decade, but I'm thrilled that he's been able to live this long, but I don't want a hair on his head touched by these evil people who, who hate religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And I was horrified by this. And I just want to say I was horrified for a few different reasons. One, I just spoke at Chautauqua, the location where he was stabbed. And I don't know how much, do you know anything about Chautauqua Institute? Well, only what you told me that they bring in sort of varied and, you know, diverse voices and, and different political persuasions, things like that. It's this very weird movement and the the original one or basically the original one is on Chautauqua Lake in western New York which is a very conservative isolated area but Chautauqua the town is this incredibly wealthy blue liberal enclave in this west in this uh, more conservative area they began as a way to train Sunday school teachers in the in the like late part of the previous, uh, actually the 19th century. And it then became this like retreat thing. And then it became more like an opportunity for a diversity of opinion. So if you were talking about a complex subject, you might have an industry executive speak on one day. And the next day you might have an activist who opposes the industry executive. And then you might have like a congressional staffer and maybe a journalist who handles, you know, you'd kind of get like a wide variety of voices. They don't debate each other, but they all were supposed to speak on the same topic. And over the course of the week, you would become 
more knowledgeable. And they have different themes for each week. It's like a 10-week series. Tickets are incredibly expensive. And in recent decades, they have become hostile to non-leftist voices. The people who go there are all kind of like mainline Christians or liberal Muslims or liberal Jews or Unitarian Universalists or um, atheists or whatnot. It's become much more hostile to conservative, even like discussion of conservative thought. So I was speaking with a group called um, Advocates for Balance at Chautauqua, and they bring in speakers who are not leftist. But while we were there, we really enjoyed, you know, we heard Marilyn Robinson give this amazing speech on science and faith. It was so beautiful. I was really thrilled to be there. They do opera and and um, symphony. It's a very, you know, peaceful if weird environment and the security is so tight you have to scan a code to go into the institute which is a town you have to scan a code to go out um it's highly restricted even though it's on a lake and i keep wanting to know more about how this individual was able to obtain access um but it was just you know it, we were just there where, where he was stabbed and like it's very hard to think about violence coming into such a place Unfortunately, it's quite easy to kill, hurt, try to hurt people. And um, it's just, especially in a free society, even with security. Also, I just quickly wanted to mention, I forgot to mention earlier, that we shouldn't forget that the fatwa is still on and that Iran upped the bounty a few years ago, I think 2016, to $4 million. It's not, you know, and, and this is a, a country we're about to make a deal with and essentially allow them to, 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 to make nuclear weapons. We probably should be giving them, it's about time to give them more pallets of cash so they can add that to the. Right. So, fatwa. yeah. When so, was that, when was that issued? The fatwa? Mm -hmm. I think it was 89, but it could have been 88. I'm not sure. The book came out in 88. It was banned in a bunch of countries. Um, and then the bombing started. And so, then, yeah. I think it was like 96 or so that he spoke at Bard College's graduation commencement, which I was ex, one of my best friends was graduating, I think that year, maybe it was 97, I can't remember. And um, that was really cool because he was not making public appearances at that time. Oh. And then a couple of years ago, he and I spoke um, in, on a small panel at the New York City Library. And we, I don't remember what we were talking about. I do remember we were disagreeing and he was, so pleasant in disagreement. He was lovely. I really enjoyed meeting him. And he seemed to, it's not surprising, I guess, if you're Salman Rushdie and you have a fatwa on your head that you would view disagreement without death threats to be enjoyable. <laughs> but he was, he was genuinely a lovely man who I really enjoyed speaking with and interacting with. And it was an honor to meet him and get to talk to him. Yeah. I am a big fan, even when I disagree with them, of people on the left who are liberals, you know, true liberals like Christopher Hitchens would be a person like that. I was happy I got to meet him, but I've never gotten to meet Salman Rushdie and I wish wish uh, and hopefully one day I will, because hopefully it'll be OK. Um, let's turn to I think he likes yeah. I think he likes hot ladies. He was married to Pat yeah. and me. Maybe if yeah. you know some hot ladies, you can use them for an entree. <laughs> I see, but I would I would never I would never abuse <laughs> the privilege of knowing them in that way. Like yeah, he he proves that you can you know that if you're really smart and have a good sense of humor, you can marry uh, 
model. Super term. hot model. Yeah, super hot model. <laughs> mm-hmm. She she's from India, so they probably had culture shared a lot. Of India culture. is a very large country. No, I don't mean they knew each other like they grew up down the street. I meant that they they had a cultural connection as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all. Okay. I mean. mm-hmm. um, let's turn to culture now. I don't have much because I've been traveling myself. I have three things I want to mention. Okay. One is Afterlife, Ricky Gervais show, which is very bittersweet and very nice. And I recommend it. I think I probably recommend the first two seasons. The third one's probably even better. I tried to watch Foundation, which is a famous um, science fiction series by Isaac Asimov, but it's Paul Krugman's favorite book. It's about like technocrats and mathematicians running the world. And it I thought I enjoyed the book in the 90s when I read it. I read it a while back, but the show is terrible. Could not get past the first episode. And the last thing I watched was Day Shift, which is about vampires and has Jamie Foxx and Snoop. Uh, what's, his, what's the rapper's name again with the Snoop? Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. I'm, I'm all East Coast, so I don't know the West Coast stuff. But um, and it was really funny. I thought it was well made. It's a weird thing to like a little quirky. So those are my three things that i watch okay how about you you do anything any culture no i was i was traveling and i did get to go to colorado and wyoming got to do a bunch of hikes that was fun um my husband and i really enjoyed seeing god's do you have a favorite place in colorado like if you had to tell people to go to one spot where would you tell them to go so we were actually out there in part because I think my husband would like to get a foothold in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Have you ever been there? I'm not sure is, a, is the answer. Very south. Technically, I guess it'd be southwestern, but it's sort of south central, I think. Oh, just no. The, I've never been there. No. Of the New Mexico border. It is gorgeous. I mean, absolutely gorgeous and a nice level of population, which is to say not too much. It has lots of game, you know, elk and deer and good fishing. It's right near a ski um, ski run called Wolf Creek. It's beautiful. And we really enjoy being there. And they've got a wonderful Lutheran church, which we're Lutheran. So we like visiting there too. Great people. Just wonderful. Great. So that's what I don't want people to move there necessarily because I think we're yeah, trying just visit. to do that. But I don't even know if I want people to visit. Why did you lure me into saying these things? Don't go there. Yeah, go it's, else. Go it's to or Aspen or Vail or Steamboat. But um, Colorado is a wonderful place. I do worry about its politics, and it's becoming oh. so hostile to conservatives that I worry that they're going to leave, and then it's going to get worse. But when anyway. I got there, I think in 2003, I think Republicans ran everything. By the time I left, Democrats ran everything. And it's only gotten worse and worse. The whole state has turned into like bolder politics. It's just kind of amazing. But as far as natural beauty goes, there, there, are, there, are, there isn't any part of the state you can go to that isn't beautiful. You know, it's just it's an amazing place. All right. So one last order of business. Uh, I always forget to do this. So I'm going to do it now, but people can email us at the show at radio at thefederalist.com. And I just wanted to send out, you know, if you have, you can send us shows that you like, but you can also send us questions, save some for Molly. They shouldn't all be directed at me. I know how this is going to go, but, um, you know, send us questions. And if we get enough interesting ones, we'll answer them. Or maybe we'll answer them if we get them often enough at the end of the show. I don't know, you know, see how we feel, right? 
I love it. And we, we have done this before where we do an, like, ask me anything. And I love the questions that we get asked. So. Okay. So hopefully next week we'll have some of those to answer, but for now, yeah. For now, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the frame. We'll see you next week. 